April 1874, present-day Colorado. A half-starved, weather-beaten Alfred Packer came limping into the Los Pinos Indian Agency, seeking refuge. Feet covered in rags, he claimed he had a harrowing story to tell. The man was ushered in and given food, which he vomited up almost as soon as he got it down. Too long without, he explained, instead opting for whiskey, anything that would calm his stomach, and hopefully his trembling hands. Finally, Alfred spoke. Said he had been a guide up in the mountains for some prospectors. They had some bad weather and worse luck, and he himself got snow blinded and the other five would-be miners abandoned him. For the next two months, the survivor somehow scrapped by, living off his wits, surviving the hellish winter, and making it to civilization all on his own with almost no supplies. An amazing tale of endurance, for sure. There's just one catch. Alfred Packer didn't seem all that malnourished. Matter of fact, the man seemed pretty well fed. And his story? Well, it had holes. Who was Alfred Packer? Was he truly guilty of the crimes that would see him spend nearly two decades behind bars? And what's human flesh taste like anyway? Pass the Chianti and crack open the fava beans as we delve into the life and times of the Colorado cannibal, Alfred Packer. My name's Josh, and this is the Wild West Extravaganza. Alfred Grinner Packer was born in Pennsylvania in January of 1842, not far from Pittsburgh. His father, James, a cabinet maker by trade, would relocate the family to Indiana shortly after, and it's there, in LaGrange County, that young Alfred would spend his formative years. As you'll soon see, however, Alfred Packer had a bit of a wanderlust. Upon turning 18 years of age, he moved out on his own and headed west for the land of crockpots, horrible accents, and Jesse Ventura also known as Minnesota. Now, despite finding steady work there as a shoemaker's apprentice, Alfred wouldn't stay in Minnesota all that long either. The nation was soon plunged into a bloody civil war, and at 20 years of age, Packer fulfilled his patriotic duty and enlisted with the 16th U.S. Infantry in April of 1862. As such, his first duty station was Camp Thomas, a training facility for Union troops outside of Columbus, Ohio. And it's here that Alfred did something I strongly recommend you do not do. He got his own name tattooed on his arm. Ugh, I know. And if that's not bad enough, the tattoo was spelled incorrectly. No regrets. Now, I'm not entirely sure who was at fault here, the tattoo artist or packer. But the fact remains, for the rest of Alfred's life, he'd have the name Alfred, as opposed to Alfred, inked on his arm. And this may be where some of the confusion as to the man's actual first name comes from. Go ahead and Google him. You'll see many sources, Wikipedia included, that list Packer's name as Alford. According to author Harold Schechter, in his book Maneater, The Life and Legend of an American Cannibal, this misconception stems from that erroneous tattoo. He also posits that it's very uh, possible Alfred himself was unsure how to spell his own name as a younger man. Now, this was actually more common than you might think back in those days. Case in point, Alfred's sister, Melissa. She repeatedly misspelled her name as well. Later in life, Alfred would write many a letter, some of which I've seen copies of, and they are all signed Alfred, not Alfred. So unless he changed his name in his latter years, I'm going to go ahead and say that his actual real name was Alfred. All right, back to the story. After getting this regretful tattoo, private I-can't-spell-my-name Packers, next stop was to Camp Douglas, just south of Chicago. 
And this was not a very fun place to be, let me tell you. Uh, Sometimes referred to as the Andersonville of the North, Camp Douglas was one of the largest POW camps of the Civil War. It's also where Alfred would contract typhoid fever, which of course is spread by eating or drinking food and or water contaminated with the feces of an infected person. This tells you all you need to know about the conditions there at Camp Douglas, right? Either that or Alfred was a dirty boy and he went ass to mouth, but much to my dismay, we have no way of knowing that for sure. When applying for government disability later in life, Alfred claimed that this typhoid affliction was due to, quote, constant and prolonged and unnecessary guard duty, end quote. He also blamed the typhoid for causing another physical malady that he'd suffer for the duration of his life, epilepsy. Ah, yes, Alfred Packer was epileptic. Now, epilepsy, aside from being a word that my mouth finds very hard to pronounce, is a neurological disorder marked by sudden recurrent episodes of sensory disturbance, loss of consciousness, or convulsions associated with abnormal electrical activity in the brain. It can be genetic, but most common causes seem to be low oxygen during birth, head injuries, brain tumors, or even just from infections like meningitis. Even abnormal levels of uh, sodium or blood sugar can cause it. In up to 70% of all cases, no cause can be determined. The only person I've ever personally known who was epileptic, I never actually saw her have a seizure, but according to her, things like uh, flashing lights could trigger it. Evidently, Alfred's case was much more extreme. Oh, and FYI, he was fibbing when he said that it was the typhoid or the guard duty that caused this epilepsy. In fact, he had suffered from these seizures since childhood. Fits, they uh, sometimes called them back in those days. And Alfred would have these so-called fits or seizures on a very regular basis, often to the point of passing out or losing consciousness. Not the greatest of conditions to have when attempting to fight a war, right? I don't think it's much of a surprise to learn that after just a few months of service, the young soldier would find himself medically discharged up at Fort Ontario in New York. And this was an honorable discharge. A doctor's note on the separation papers basically states that Alfred was unfit for duty due to his seizures and this obviously wasn't something that he himself could control. Still, though, Packer was determined to serve. Gotta give him credit there. He'd enlist again six months later in June of 1863, this time with Company L of the 8th Ohio Cavalry. Uh, for any new listeners, I also struggle with the word cavalry, so uh, yeah. Anyway, this stint would last a little longer. The 8th was sent down to Tennessee, where they were involved mostly with guard and garrison duties, and some skirmishes with guerrillas west of Nashville. And somewhere along the line, Alfred got his pay docked for, quote, plundering the citizens of Nashville. End quote. Make of that what you will. I'm assuming he was stealing shit that absolutely did not belong to him. And it most certainly would not be the last time. Wasn't long after that when Alfred was once again medically discharged thanks to his epilepsy. Uh, this was in April of 1864, 10 months after his enlistment. By the way, just a history nerd tangent real quick. The Battle of Nashville wouldn't take place for like another nine months. I thought initially maybe that's where the plundering came into play, but no. Not exactly sure of the situation here. Uh, maybe some of you Civil War buffs can email me and let me know what action, if any, Packer may have been involved with in the area at that time. As it is, I'm not sure whether Alfred ever saw combat. Uh, and even if he didn't, that doesn't take anything away from his service. I'm just genuinely curious. 
We know that by the time of Packer's discharge, he was suffering from seizures at least every couple of days, sometimes having two or three within a 48-hour period, and that is according to a doctor's note. By this point, the war was almost over, and Alfred, not bothering to enlist a third time, simply drifted west, taking odd jobs as he went. Everything from a harness maker to a laborer. And according to him, he even spent time as a hunter and wilderness guide. Although I do find that a little hard to believe for reasons that will become apparent soon enough. Alfred eventually found himself in the gold diggings of Colorado, where he would have the misfortune of losing the top portions of both his pinky and index fingers in a mining accident. He also took up work as a jackwhacker, old Packer the Whacker. Now, I found this especially interesting as I had no idea you could actually earn a living being a jackwhacker. Boy, oh boy, if I had a dollar for every time I've whacked my jack. Well, let's just say, talk about striking it rich. A real stroke of good luck, if you know what I mean. And it really says a lot about Packer's skill level. You know, being able to whack a jack while missing parts of two fingers. Although I have been told it does make it more natural that way. Uh, no, uh, actually a jack whacker was sort of like a mule skinner. It was teamster work. Alfred was basically driving pack mules, carrying supplies, lumber, food, all that good stuff back and forth from various mining camps. All the while, while still suffering from chronic seizures. Packer would eventually continue his trek westward and by the year 1871 could be found working in the Bingham Canyon copper mines, not far from Salt Lake City, Utah. A vocation that caused Alfred to quote unquote, get leaded, a miner's term for contracting lead poisoning. A very real danger, then and now, especially in developing countries where laborers get it probably the same way that Alfred did. Horrible working conditions that cause them to inhale dust that contains lead. Severe cases can lead to death, and symptoms include super fun stuff like joint, muscle, and abdominal pain, headaches, difficulty concentrating, mood disorders, even seizures. Kind of wonder if Alfred's epilepsy was kicked into overdrive during this time. And this would not be his only case of lead poisoning. Not long after this bout, Alfred took up work in Sandy, Utah, just south of Salt Lake, where he got leaded yet again, this time ingesting castor oil as treatment per a doctor's order. Now, I've never tried castor oil, but I've heard a lot about it from older family members who were forced to take it when they were growing up. And they were forced to take it to cure pretty much everything. Feeling sick to your stomach? Here's a spoonful of castor oil. Constipated? Castor oil. Headache? Castor oil. Don't feel like going to school? Oh yeah, you taking that castor oil. From what I've gathered, it pretty much causes you to shit your insides out, along with all the impurities that are causing whatever ails you. I've even heard that it's been used to induce labor, so you know it's some strong stuff. Not sure it actually really helps with anything though, and I'm pretty positive it does nothing for lead poisoning, or epilepsy for that matter. A quick search on Google reveals that a common modern-day treatment for lead poisoning is a method known as chelation therapy. You're injected with a certain cocktail of drugs that bind the metals to your blood, and then you just sort of piss them out. Obviously, this wasn't an option back in the 1870s, so castor oil it was. And who knows, maybe it did help as Alfred was back on his feet and feeling spry by the fall of 1873, right around the time that he met up with a failed prospector turned freight hauler Bob McGrew. And here's where things get interesting. Now, Bob and some other old boys were planning on headed east to pan for gold in Colorado. Breckenridge, Colorado, or thereabouts. And long story short, Alfred sort of conned his way in with them. He told the group that he knew the area they were going to and that he had previously lived and worked in Colorado, which was true, 
However, when he added that he could serve as a guide and help them reach their destination in just 20 short days, he was either lying through his teeth or at very least vastly overestimating his own abilities. Truth was, Alfred Packer couldn't guide himself out of a damn paper sack, much less a vast wilderness. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Packer was broke as a joke at this point, and he needed some money. I'm not above lying to get a job my own self. So, okay, fine. And who knows, maybe he did really believe he could guide them into the gold diggings. I mean, he had made the trip himself, at least in the opposite direction, so who knows. Either way, he convinced this Bob McGrew to provide him his $50 grub steak, and away they went. It would be 21 men total who'd leave Utah bound for Colorado. None of them, it seems, very experienced in the arts of wilderness survival. And in all fairness, someone like Packer, who knew the lay of the land, could prove to be invaluable. At least that was the hope. Couple of things I found interesting, though. First off, it does appear that McGrew was initially impressed by Alfred. He would state that Packer looked to be in great physical shape, that he was smart, and even a quote-unquote fine talker. He also let it slide that Packer enjoyed arguing religion with the Mormons. Now, I'm not sure if these were like intellectual, good-faith type theological debates, or if they were more akin to just internet trolling type arguments. And I say that because other than Bob McGrew, literally nobody else was impressed by Alfred Packer. Matter of fact, the other men of the expedition could not stand the man. And I mean not at all. The other thing worth noting is that Alfred was rumored to have circulated a little bit of counterfeit money there in the Salt Lake City region. He also, by his own admission, spent three months in jail after being caught in a whorehouse. And I can't blame him on that one. I think we all know how freaky them Mormon women can be, right? All you little Salt Lake soakers out there. Think I don't know? Little Mormon marinators, you? Seriously, uh, although Alfred does at this point strike me as being a little shady, well, with the constant moving around, the lying about being a guide, some possible jail time, there's nothing too damning here, right? None of what I just mentioned would have really caused the men to dislike him that much. No, it seems it was a combination of all of the above and a whole bunch of other stuff. First and foremost, it quickly became apparent that he weren't no guide. You know, nowadays, if you were to travel from Salt Lake City, Utah to Breckenridge, Colorado, you're looking at about seven and a half hour drive. Head south through Provo, hit I-70 and take that due west all the way to Colorado and your final destination. No fuss, no muss. Maybe stop and grab some lunch along the way at a tiny diner where the waitresses call you honey and they chain smoke Marlboro Reds and probably sound like Selma and Patty from The Simpsons. Things would have been much different for Alfred Packer and the gang back in 1873, however. They set out on the 1st of November after stocking up on supplies and they headed southeast on the old Spanish Trail till they crossed the Colorado River, possibly near present-day Moab, Utah. This is where things sort of petered out. Seeing as how it was already late in the year, the road, if you want to call it that, was already buried under the snow. As such, it became abundantly clear that their intrepid guide, Alfred Packer, had no fucking clue where to go. And just in case you're not all that great with geography, the men were now approaching the Rocky Mountains, the San Juan Range in particular, a very rugged area and not something you'd want to try as a tenderfoot, unless you had a scout that is, a real scout. And even then, there are cases of experienced hands getting lost in such areas. John C. Fremont, the famous explorer, for example, had a very disastrous expedition not far from the area where Packer and the boys were headed. He was being guided by old Bill Williams, a very capable mountain man, and still 10 of their party perished. This rugged terrain in the dead of winter does not discriminate. One false step, one mistake, and you're a dead man. Experience be damned. 
Just to get an idea of how rough going it was, remember how I said it was supposed to be a 20-day journey? Well, two months later, the would-be miners were still trying to make it. And by this point, they were completely fed up with Alfred Packer. And it wasn't just because he sucked at a guide, nor was it due to his condition and his constant seizures. Although that certainly didn't help matters. No, it seemed that Alfred Packer was just sort of a creepy guy and not much of a team player. The expedition started rationing their food rather quickly, you know, once it became apparent that the trip would take longer than planned. This, however, did not stop Alfred from eating his fill. And he wasn't even being sneaky about it, just blatantly eating more than his fair share. He was also a little too nosy for his own good, constantly asking the men how much money they had on them and gossiping about said money to the other party members. He complained a lot and about everything and was just basically unwilling to pull his own weight. A quote-unquote whining fraud is how one of the men of the expedition would later remember Packer. And then there's the fact that his voice had this annoying high pitch to it. So yeah, not only did Alfred prove to be useless, but he was also grating on the nerves. Not a winning combination. Trust me, I should know. And nobody ever makes mention of it, but I get the feeling that Alfred was the type of guy that stands uncomfortably close when he talks to you. And for sure, if he was around nowadays, he'd talk really loud over speakerphone out in public. And just to give you an idea of how little he was respected, at one point he had a seizure and fell into the fire, and nobody even made a move to help him. They told Bob McGrew, who eventually got up and pulled him out of the fire, that Alfred was now his responsibility. Alright, so obviously the men soon ran out of food. Remember, they only packed for 20 days, and they might just have been doomed had it not been for some various friendly Native Americans that they ran into along the way. These indigenous saviors would guide the prospectors for a day or two and then head home. Then the Myers run into another good Samaritan who would do the same. Still, though, it wasn't that long before they were completely out of food. At one point, they even had to live off a horse feed, chopped barley, I believe it was, for five whole days. Finally, on January 25th, 1874, nearly 90 days after departing Salt Lake City, the men had the good fortune to run to a band of Ute under the leadership of Chief Ure, their present-day Montrose, Colorado. Now, this was Ute land that they were on, legally. And once Ure determined that the men weren't a threat, he did invite them to winter just a couple of miles away from his village, which they gladly did, setting up camp in various shelters, everything from tents to dugouts to crude shrub and brush-type dwellings that Packer himself took refuge in. The men were also able to trade a bit with the Ute, securing a couple of goats for food as well as some clothing, stuff like that. And believe it or not, some of the men still wanted to push on. Even asked Ure if he'd lend some scouts to get them where they needed to go. A request that the chief wisely refused. Said that the conditions were so rough, not even a Ute would attempt to make such a journey, and he urged the men just to chill where they were for the winter. Ah, but they wouldn't listen. And by February, six of the men were ready to travel. Seeing that these hard-headed fools were determined, and knowing that they wouldn't listen to reason, Ure was gracious enough to load them up with some food and even give them directions a much safer route that would take them along the Gunnison River. And thus provisioned, they set out with Alfred Packer attempting to follow. But they would not have him. One of the guys, a former officer of the law, actually pulled a pistol on Alfred and told him to get his ass back to camp. Not the most popular guy on the expedition, Alfred Packer. Still, though, he was undeterred. And for whatever reason, he was not content to stay put near the Ute camp either. Claiming once again to be some sort of a guide, he proposed a direct route that would take them in over the mountains in the effing winter, and somehow he convinced five others to accompany him. 
I guess the idea was to head straight for the Los Pinos Indian Agency, which I believe was the closest point of civilization. But come on, man, what is the rush? All they had to do was just sit around a campfire for the next couple of months, flirt with beautiful Ute women, and eat barbecued goat. But no, they had to go out there and follow a damn lunatic on a 75-mile-long journey into the freezing damn wilderness. And this group of geniuses consisted of Alfred Packer, of course, a guy named Frank the Butcher Miller, George California Noon, Israel Swan, Shannon Wilson Bell, and James Humphrey. They had two rifles, one pistol, a hatchet, a couple of knives, and a handful of matches. No flint or any other way to start a fire, very little ammunition, no heavy coats, no snowshoes. They barely had any food. They were in no way, shape, or form in any sort of condition to attempt to cross over the rocky damn mountains in the middle of winter, or even the summer for that matter. With that in mind, I think it should come as no surprise that once spring had sprung, they were all dead. All of them, except for Alfred Packer, that is. He finally arrived at their intended destination, the Los Pinos Indian Agency, alone and half-froze, in mid-April of 1874, over two months after he and them other five set out from the Ute Village. Now, there's various versions of what exactly happened when Packer showed up. Some claim that he was ravished and ate almost immediately. Others say that he only wanted whiskey. Another version, which seems to have the ring of truth, is that he took the whiskey to calm his nerves, to get his appetite up, and then he ate. Likely, he needed the whiskey to steal himself before telling his tale. After all, I think we'd all need a few shots of whiskey after doing what Alfred did. He initially claimed that he got afflicted with snow blindness, at which time the rest of the men abandoned him, leaving him with just a Winchester rifle. As such, he had to make it out of the wilderness alone, living mostly on rosebuds he found along the way. The men of the agency found the rosebuds claim especially strange, seeing as how Alfred did not appear all that starved. He looked like a wild man who had just emerged from the mountains, sure, but he wasn't skin and bones. He clearly had more to eat than damn rosebuds. Uh, by the way, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, why didn't they eat the damn horses? Well, the horses they still had were back at the Ute camp. When Alfred and those five guys set out, they did so on foot. The snow would have been far too deep for the horses to cross through anyway. All right, so Alfred, after making his tell, also claimed to be broke and sold his rifle to the agency's justice, a guy named Major James Downer, and soon set off for the nearby town of Sawatch to buy supplies. Said he was going to go back home to Pennsylvania. Another strange claim, considering that he hadn't lived in Pennsylvania since he was a baby. Either way, Alfred would not leave town immediately. Matter of fact, he went on a little bit of a spree, spending a whopping $100 in Dolan Saloon. Ten times the amount of money he got for uh, selling that Winchester, by the way. So he clearly wasn't as broke as he claimed. $100 in 1874, just in case you're curious, is like $2,500 in today's money. And that's a lot of whiskey. Packer then went to the general store and spent a reported $78, $1,900 in today's money, on some fresh duds and supplies. And then, of course, he headed back to Dolan's saloon. Liked it so much there that he actually took up residence in it, living off of canned oysters, peaches, and, of course, whiskey. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but strong liquor tends to loosen one's lips. Just a bit. And Alfred was no different. He began drunkenly sharing his harrowing tale to all who would listen, and of course, each telling differed from the other, one story often contradicting the previous. There's also the suspicious amount of wallets or billfolds that he had on his person. And then something else happened that didn't help his cause none. Remember all them guys that stayed back with the ute, opting to look after the wagons and horses till springtime? 
Well, these old boys began trickling in, astonished to find Packer drinking it up there in the saloon. Of course, they were curious, you know, what happened to the other men that Alfred departed with? Where were they? What became of them? Alfred stuck with his original story. Kind of. Uh, saying that the men left him to fend for himself after he stepped in some water and froze his foot. Remember, uh, originally he said that he was uh, temporarily blinded. Nonetheless, it was curious to these men that Packer had been left with a rifle. It was also curious that he had other possessions on him that once belonged to his former uh, companions. Like, oh, I don't know, their wallets, or Mr. Miller's much-beloved butcher knife, or a tobacco pipe that belonged to party member Shannon Bell. As for the knife, Packer claimed that Miller stuck it into a tree and went off and left it. Finders keepers, losers weepers, I guess. These men of the expedition weren't buying it, though, especially a guy by the name of Preston Nutter. He knew something bad had happened and claimed that Packer was a quote-unquote quarrelsome liar, and before too long, accusations began to fly. Things got so heated that Preston wanted to string Alfred up right there on the streets of Sawatch. Cooler heads prevailed, though, and the two men were separated. And Packer quickly and wisely began making plans to get the hell out of town. Unfortunately for him, he took his leaving a bit slow. Other members of the expedition started showing up. You know, them guys that followed Chief Ure's safer route along the river. You know, the ones that uh, wouldn't let Alfred join them. And when they heard Packer's story, they cried bullshit as well saying that those men with Alfred weren't the type just to abandon a man like that. They were so damn adamant that not only was Alfred not to be trusted, but that something horrible must have happened up there in the mountains, that they finally convinced the head of the agency, Charles Adams, to send some men to Sawatch to bring Packer in for questioning. They didn't simply just arrest the man, though. They caught up with Alfred and explained that they were going to send a search party to look for his companions and that they needed him to guide them there. Of course, he didn't want to do this, but old Mr. Nutter and his buddies were still on his ass, and he had the very real fear at this point of being lynched. So, he rode on back to Los Pinos with his escort. Once there, he had to sit down with Adams, who by this time had quite a few questions for Alfred Packer. Matter of fact, he even convened a council of minors. Essentially, this was like a come-to-Jesus moment. Tell me what really happened, Alfred. I understand. If it's what I think, well, you did what any man would have done to survive. It's okay. Just tell me. And then it didn't help matters much when a couple of Ute showed up with what they called white man's meat. Dried strips of human flesh that they found on a nearby hill. Oh boy, it was all too much for Alfred. He got so overwhelmed that he fainted. Once revived and back on his feet, I guess Packer felt like it was time to come clean. Started begging for mercy and began his confession ominously, saying, quote, it would not be the first time that people had been obliged to eat each other when they were hungry. Packer claimed, as I've already mentioned, that they ran out of food after a few days and they were living off whatever they could find. Roots, rosebuds, an occasional rabbit. These dudes even ate their own boots. Okay? Then one day, with all of them on the verge of starvation, Packer left camp to gather firewood. Upon his return, he found Israel Swan dead on the ground, his head caved in with a hatchet, and the other four men just standing around him. They then butchered Swan's body, divvy up the money he had on him, and they dined on his flesh. The body of one person won't last long when picked up by five hungry men, though. Then a few days, Israel was all add up, and once again, hunger began gnawing at the men's bellies. According to Alfred, this is when they began conspiring to eat the butcher Miller next. Which they did, likewise dispatching him with a blow to the head by that hatchet, as he bent over to pick up some fuel for the fire. Evidently, there was a method to their madness, as Miller was said to be stocky, so I guess they were hungry for a little bit of fat. And so it went. 
Humphrey was next, followed by George Noon, leaving just Packer and Bell, who made a pact not to eat each other. Said they'd never speak of what truly happened, and if they made it out alive, they would just claim that the other men died of starvation or the weather, and that they all had proper burials. But of course, why stop now? I mean, eating human flesh is kind of like a can of Pringles, right? You just can't stop. Soon enough, both men were out of food and hungry, again. Alfred claimed that this is when Bell snapped and ran at him, swinging his rifle like a club. Packer deflected the blow and counterattacked, striking the bigger man with a fatal blow to the head with a hatchet and shot him. And once again, Alfred Packer had a full belly. And you know the rest. He was soon emerged from the wilderness there at Los Pinos. Upon hearing this so-called confession, the men of the expedition once again called bullshit, especially when it came to Bell, saying that he was the type to lay down his life for others as opposed to being the crazed killer that Packer claimed. Either way, a search party was organized. They were to head to the area where Packer claimed he and Bell camped out for a few days, a big lake some 50 or so miles from Los Pinos, and Alfred would be forced to guide them there. Things didn't go so smoothly, though. You had a few members of the original expedition, including Nutter, who hated Packer. You had a few Ute scouts and the agency constable, a guy named Louder. A few days into the journey, Louder noticed that Alfred had that old skin and knife that he took from Miller concealed on his person. Louder demanded that he hand it over, and Packer sort of snapped and came rushing at the constable, blade in hand. This attack was easily thwarted, and Packer was both disarmed and subdued. Nutter ripped into him again, saying that he deserved to be hanged, and at this point, Packer began claiming that he was lost, and he refused to go any further. He and the constable soon returned to the agency, where Packer was placed into the custody of the Sawat sheriff. As for the other men of the search party, they continued, and they did find Packer's old camp. But despite searching for a couple of weeks, they were not able to locate any bodies. Meanwhile, back at the agency and in custody, Packer withdrew his original confession. This time he claimed that the men made a pact that if someone died, it'd be okay if the others ate him. Swan was the first to go, dying of exposure. Humphrey suffered the same fate. Then, when Packer was out gathering wood, Butcher Miller was killed by accident, or at least that's what Alfred claims he was told. At some point thereafter, Bell shot and killed California Noon, and then Alfred killed Bell when he came at it. As far as the money goes, Packer admitted that he took it because it weren't no use to the dead men any longer. Now, this part here, I agree with him on. You know, what earthly good would it do to leave all that money there? Of course, the proper thing to do would have been to make sure the money gets to the next of kin rather than, you know, a several day whiskey and oyster binge. Maybe help yourself to just one day of oysters and whiskey, and then you send the rest of the money to the family members. I think that's what I'd do. Now, from what I can tell, Alfred Packer was stuck there in that makeshift jail at the Los Pinos agency for the next few months, at least until August. Not sure what they were planning on doing with the man, but they weren't going to just let him go. You know, maybe they were hoping to establish proof that he had indeed murdered his companions, as suspected. Like I said, Nutter and the others on that search party, they spent weeks looking for the bodies of the missing and presumed dead men. They even dammed up a little portion of a river, thinking that Packer had dumped the bodies. Now, what happened next is a little confusing as two things happened very quickly. One, the bodies were discovered that August. There's some disagreement as to who made the gruesome discovery, but it was likely an artist named John Randolph. And the location is now known as Dead Man's Gulch, near the Lake Fork of the Gunnison River. And two, Alfred Packer escaped from jail and disappeared. Now, which order these things happened in, I was not able to determine. I think Packer escaped shortly before the bodies were discovered, but I could be wrong. 
We also don't know for sure how he escaped. Some say that he bribed the guards or even the sheriff, while others think he was slipped a penknife that he used to kind of slip out of his shackles. Still, others claim that it was the town of Sawatch's founders who helped him escape, mostly due to them not appreciating having to foot the bill for this prisoner for months on end. One thing's for sure, though. Alfred wasn't about to sit around and wait patiently for a hangman's noose. As soon as he had his opportunity, he took it and got the hell out of town. And you got to give credit where credit is due. You know, the guy didn't linger. He didn't just go to the next town and get drunk. No, he flat out disappeared. So much so that many speculated that he was dead. As word of his grisly deeds spread, so did the rumors. With many thinking that he never even made it out of Colorado, that he was killed by Native Americans shortly after escaping. And of course, nothing of the sort was true. Packer wasn't dead. He was just simply in Arkansas. Which, to be fair, is about as close to dead as you can get on this side of the grave. After laying low in Arkansas, Packer continued to wander, never staying too long in one place. First Nevada, then Arizona, up Montana way, and eventually Wyoming. And somewhere along the line, he took to using the alias John Schwartz. Now remember, Packer was a miner by profession, and he soon found himself back in that line of work. Matter of fact, it's what he was doing there in Wyoming when he finally got caught nearly a decade after his escape. An original member of the expedition, a guy by the name of John Frenchy Cabazon, he was one of the guys who stayed put there in the Ute camp. Well, he happened to be on his way to Fort Fetterman when he stopped at a roadside inn. As he was attempted to catch a little shut-eye, he couldn't help but to notice a familiar high-pitched, annoying voice speaking loudly in the next room. Upon further investigation, he found out that the voice did indeed belong to none other than Alfred Packer. From what I can tell, however, it appears both men sort of pretended they didn't know each other. Alfred obviously was trying to pass as this John Schwartz guy, and even went so far as to ask Cabazon to bring him some bacon soda next time he passed through the area, claimed to have been prospecting in nearby Spring Canyon. But as far as Frenchie was concerned, it was Packer without a doubt. Right, That voice and those missing fingers, even crude false teeth in the place of his missing ones. I think I actually forgot to mention that earlier. Uh, Packer was missing his front two upper teeth and had been ever since the expedition. But I guess by this point in time, he had obtained some false teeth somewhere. The next day, Cabazone wasted no time in alerting authorities and the Laramie County Sheriff paid Alfred a visit, arresting him without incident and placing his ass in the jail there in Cheyenne. Evidently, this wasn't Packer's first run-in with the law in Wyoming. He had previously been locked up for threatening a waiter uh, with a damn revolver just because the man was a tad bit on the slow side in bringing Alfred his water. And that little tidbit of information is where I lose what little sympathy I have for Alfred Packer. And I did, believe it or not, have a little bit of sympathy. You know, nobody ever really cared about Alfred. And I do think a lot of it had to do with his epilepsy. It would have made him a bit of a social pariah wherever he went, especially in those days. He likely felt ostracized and getting kicked out of the army twice, even though it was for medical reasons, probably didn't help either. Dude was missing two fingers and two teeth, so you know he wasn't winning no beauty contests. And he just had a way about him that rubbed others the wrong way. I got the same failing myself. There's times when I think people, despite my intentions, take what I say or do the wrong way, and I get it. I've also kind of always had a soft spot for rejects, mostly because I've been a bit of a reject my entire life as well. And I couldn't help but to think that maybe Alfred kind of felt the same way. And then I hear about little incidents like this with the waiter, and that's one of my biggest pet peeves. And it's something I think is very telling about somebody's character. 
you know, how they treat their wait staff or anyone that they consider to be below them on the social ladder. Whether it's an employee at a restaurant, you know, some kid working McDonald's or just whoever's bagging their groceries. I found that people who act like this generally feel powerless in their day to day lives. You know, their boss treats them like shit and they just take it because they have no spine. Their wife and kids ignore them. They've got no say at home. So the one time they actually feel like they have some power is when they have another human being taking food orders for them or something. And for the record, I've never even worked as a waiter. I just hate that type of mentality. Oh, this person's job is to serve me as if I'm some sort of king. So let me try to make them feel as shitty as I do. As if someone who has that type of job is somehow below you. Go fuck yourself if that's how you think. I don't care if someone's working at Taco Bell or not. They're working. They're being productive. You aren't somehow above them just because you feel inadequate in your day-to-day life. The chaps my hide. All right, enough of my ranting. Also, Packer did brag a bit when he got arrested. He told the sheriff, quote, That's the first time in 20 years I didn't have my gun on me. If I had, you could have never taken me. Like he's John Wayne or something. To loosely paraphrase Charles Bronson in the excellent movie, Mr. Majestic, Alfred Packer was making sounds like he was a mean little ass kicker. Only I ain't convinced. For what it's worth, once apprehended, Packer calmed down and readily confessed to his true identity. He was eventually taken to Denver by train and reunited with Charles Adams from the Los Pinos Agency. And his mean little ass kicking facade began cracking as well. Seems that Alfred got mighty nervous at the throng of people who came to see the infamous Colorado cannibal. And as such, he began to once again fear a lynching. Promised Adams that he'd give another confession, a true and full confession, if only he was placed in jail and protected from the murderous mob. By the way, I'm not sure of the exact location of Packer's arrest. Uh, One source claimed a cabin on Hound Creek west of Laramie. Just thought I'd toss that in there. Packer was true to his word, and he did give another confession, this one differing from the previous two. Once again, he explained how bad off he and the men were, you know, snowed in and living off of rosebuds, how they had to eat their boots, told how some of the men were so hungry they were crying out in pain. Finally, Packer took the rifle and he went to go look for help. When he returned to camp later that day, unsuccessful, he found that everybody was dead except for Bell, who was cooking a piece of meat that he had cut off of uh, Butcher Miller. Bell, seemingly gone mad by this point, ran at Packer and Alfred shot him. As he fell, Packer then gave him a coup de gras over the top of the head with that hatchet, and that was that. Alfred claimed to have left the next morning, but was driven back to camp due to the deep snow, and it's then that he finally gave in to his hunger. Each day that followed, Packer said that he tried to get away to leave camp, but each day he would end up returning and dining on human flesh yet again. There was $70 he collected among the dead men, which he pocketed with his own 20. Eventually, the weather broke, and he was able to leave carrying some of the meat with him and eating as he traveled and finally discarding what was left as soon as he got to the agency. When he was asked why this confession was so different than the earlier two, he claimed that he wasn't himself at the time, that he couldn't be held responsible for anything that he might have said. Remember, at the very beginning, Packer claimed that his companions abandoned him. Then when he was finally called on his bullshit, he gave the elaborate tale of them killing each other one by one. Now, with this confession, he claimed that it was Bell that killed everybody, and he only killed Bell out of self-defense. I'll give him a little bit of leniency as far as, you know, being out of his mind at the time. It certainly would have been a traumatic experience, and I could see not exactly being in the right frame of mind after finally making it back to civilization. Nevertheless, Packer would be tried for murder, a trial that would take place in the new mining town of Lake City, Colorado, 
Not all that far from the so-called Dead Man's Gulch where Packer claimed that Bell killed the other men. I was actually familiar with Lake City before ever researching Alfred Packer, and I was surprised that there was a connection. But I've always been kind of fascinated with the place, even though I've never been there. Located in a valley in the San Juan Mountains, Lake City only boasts a population of around 400. It's fairly secluded, beautiful, and unfortunately, it's colder than a witch's tit. I've always thought it would be a cool place to escape to, you know, provided I could one day afford such an escape. However, the older I get, the more I realize that maybe I've spent too much of my life in Texas and I might not enjoy spending months at a time freezing my ass off, beautiful or not. I don't know what it is about getting older and not being able to take the cold anymore. Anyway, back to the story. Packer's trial began on April 6, 1883, not even a month after his arrest. And it was during this trial that the prosecution put forth the theory that Alfred deliberately lied about his abilities as a scout to lure these men who he knew had money out into the wilderness with the express purpose of murdering them and taking their money. And this is a good spot to point out that Alfred was never put on trial for cannibalism. Only murder. Just wanted to clear that up. And get this, it's not even against the law here in the United States to consume human flesh. At least not in 49 of our 50 states. Not technically. Idaho does have a specific law barring cannibalism, but even they make an exception for life-threatening conditions where eating human flesh is the only means of survival. It's crazy, though. You know, it's not illegal to be a cannibal anywhere else in the U.S. Here's the catch, though. You can't murder somebody to eat them, even if they agree to it. That's still murder. And you're not allowed to desecrate a corpse, so you can't just dig up like a freshly buried body or something. However, you could theoretically buy a body part, which is way easier than I thought. In a 2017 article published by Reuters titled The Body Trade, cashing in on the donated dead, they shed light on abuses that occur when cadavers are sold to a mostly unregulated market. I guess the idea is that some poor families turn to certain organizations who offer free cremation services in exchange for donating their loved ones' bodies to, quote, advance medical studies. And in a lot of legitimate circles, this is absolutely necessary. Medical students, doctors, some nurses, even some dentists have uses for cadavers for training purposes. The article goes on to say that from 2011 to 2015, private brokers received at least 50,000 bodies and distributed more than 182,000 body parts. And since it's an unregulated market, we don't really know what's happening to many of these parts. That said, you probably could purchase a body part legally. You didn't have to kill nobody for it, and it doesn't fall under the desecrating a corpse thing, I think. You know, is it then legal to buy and eat a body part? I don't fucking know. Sounds fishy to me. I know that according to a 2018 Vice article, a man who wanted to remain anonymous had his foot amputated after a motorcycle accident. He asked to keep said foot, and the doctors agreed. He then invited several of his friends over to his home, where they all dined on tacos made from his foot. Woo! And of course, there are those absolute psychos who keep and eat their placentas after giving birth. I shit you not. If you're looking for a step-by-step guide on how to obtain human flesh with the express purpose of eating it, you're on your own. I, I can't help you there. Uh, this is where I'm guessing the dark web would come into play. Also, all this talk of cannibalism is getting me to thinking about what it might taste like. And the answer is probably pork. At least that's according to an article I found on The Guardian from 2010 aptly titled, What Does Human Flesh Taste Like? 
They quoted one verified real-life cannibal as saying that it tastes like pork, only a little bitter, while another said that it tastes like good, fully developed veal. So there you go. You got one for pork, the other for veal. Now we need a tiebreaker. Well, German serial killer Fritz Harman, who killed 24 male prostitutes in the early 1900s, actually disposed of the remains by selling them as pork. And as far as I know, none of his customers complained that their pork tasted funny, so I think it's safe to say that us people taste a little bit like swine. One last thing, then we'll get back to Alfred Packer. I've seen the book of Eli like a hundred times, and I had to know, does eating human flesh make your hands shake? Well, from what I can tell, it depends on whether or not you eat the brains. Uh, I guess there are prions in the human brain that when eaten can cause a disease called Kuru, K-U-R-U. Kind of like mad cow disease for humans. The four or 4A people of Papua New Guinea have been observed with this after eating their uh, victims. It can be fatal, and since it's a disease of the nervous system, the symptoms do include a lack of control over your body movements, loss of coordination, and yes, the shakes. But in the case of Alfred Packer, I guess as long as he didn't eat their brains, then I think he was safe. Anyway, who cares, right? We are disgusting, and we eat disgusting shit all the time. If you think you've never had human flesh and you've eaten canned ravioli or hot dogs or McDonald's, you're kidding yourself. You're out of your damn mind. You know a finger got lost in there at some point. All right, back to the trial of Alfred Packer. It would last all of a week, and he would be found guilty as hell of premeditated murder, despite his pleading the opposite. And he would be sentenced to death by hanging with an execution date of May 19th, 1883. It was reported, and it still to this day is often repeated, that the presiding judge, M.B. Gary, said the following as he handed down the sentence. Quote, Stand up, you voracious man-eating son of a bitch, and receive your sentence. When you came to Hinsdale County, there were seven Democrats, but you ate five of them, goddamn you. I sent you to be hanged by the neck till you're dead, dead, dead. As a warning again, reduce the Democratic population of this county. Packer, you Republican cannibal. I will sentence you to hell, but the statutes forbid it. End quote. And as entertaining as that was, it's not true. Not even a little bit. Uh, the judge was actually much more level-headed when laying down the sentence, if not long-winded. I've actually read the entire speech the judge gave, and I'm not going to recite it here because it would take fucking forever. The dude loved the sound of his own voice. Probably should have started his own podcast. And there was no condemnation or anything like that, no mention of Republicans or Democrats, and he didn't sound like Yosemite Sam. But he did, in the end, sentence Alfred to hang by the neck until he was dead, dead, dead. By the way, why do they say dead three times like that? I know why they say until dead, of course. You know, hangings aren't always pretty, and they don't always ensure a quick death, so you want to hang them until they're dead. But three times? I don't know. If you happen to know why the word is repeated three times, please email me and let me know, josh at wildwestextra.com. The sentence notwithstanding, Packer had himself some decent lawyers, and believe it or not, they were able to get his rendezvous with the noose overturned. I'm not too good on the whole legalese of the matter, but it was something due to the effect of uh, when the crime was committed, Colorado wasn't yet a state. Ex post facto law, I think is what it's called. There were other issues with Packer's trial as well, like the fact that he damn sure didn't have an impartial jury there in Lake City. Now, this doesn't mean that Packer just got off scot-free, though. His death sentence was overturned, but he was still culpable for the deaths of those men. He had another trial after a change of venue and once again pled not guilty. And he was once again found guilty. This time, instead of being sentenced to death, he was only sentenced to 40 years in prison. 
And I use the word only semi-sarcastically. This was at the time, in June of 1886, the longest mandatory sentence ever handed down in the United States. By the way, one thing I found that was interesting was that hunters came forward during this time claiming that while the winter of 1874, when the deaths occurred, was a very harsh winter, there was still abundant game, big and large. Enough that, as far as they were concerned, there was no need to resort to cannibalism. To which I say, maybe. What may seem easy to an experienced Colorado hunter may not be so easy for others. I've personally gone hunting on many, many occasions when weather was optimal and not seen a damn thing. But then again, I wasn't starving to death either. Packer's credit, he did testify on his own behalf, and his version of events remained very similar to that third full confession that he gave on the trip back to Colorado. He steadfastly maintained that the only man he killed was Bell, and even during the sentencing asked that if they were determined to send him away for 40 years, to do so for the killing of just that one man. By the way, Alfred always maintained this story. He never did admit to killing the others. You would think that, you know, as many do when their backs are against the wall, that, that he would have admitted to anything to get out of such a long stretch. But he did not. Which leads to the big question. Was he telling the truth? If things happened, as Packer claimed, you know, if he returned back to camp to find that Shannon Bell killed everyone and then Bell attacked him, then what Packer did was in self-defense. And remember, he wasn't on trial for eating human flesh. Everybody knew he was a cannibal. He admitted to it. And it wasn't against the law. You know, nobody really held that against him anyway. It was not unheard of. It was taboo, but it was not illegal. We'll get more into whether or not you think Alfred was guilty later. Uh, at the time, though, as far as he was concerned, all that mattered was what the judge said, and the judge sent his ass to jail for what would have probably been the rest of his natural life had the tide not begun to change, and had he not gotten some help from a lady by the name of Polly Pry. Polly was a journalist for the Denver Post who took great interest in Packer and his situation, after meeting him in 1901. And it was her actions, along with the backing of the paper, that secured Alfred Packer an early release. Also, as I alluded to, public opinion was changing. Alfred was sentenced back in 1886. By the turn of the century, however, a somewhat more liberal mindset had taken hold of the populace. People started feeling sorry for him. You know, they started noticing how his health was quickly deteriorating due to the imprisonment and his ever-present seizures. And they also kind of viewed him with a bit of nostalgia. He was a remnant of the Old West days, you know, a kind of a leftover artifact from the days of wild Indians. By the way, a primary source I used to research Alfred Packer was the excellent book Maneater by Harold Schechter. I definitely recommend it if you're interested in the subject. Very well researched. It goes into great detail about the various trials, Packer's time spent incarcerated, and his relationship with Miss Polly Pryde. There's a lot I'm leaving out, okay? The damn audio version of the book is over nine hours long. Obviously, I'm not going to make a podcast episode that long. This is already too long. So yeah, there's a lot more involved with the story. All kinds of crazy stuff. Packer was given a job making bridles out of horsehair. He also worked in the prison gardens, and he himself made extra money by building and selling these elaborate Victorian-style dollhouses. How creepy would that be, having a dollhouse made by a damn homicidal cannibal? And he got scammed while in prison at least like three times. He was getting a military pension, 25 bucks a month, and what little bit he was able to save away, he was constantly getting scammed out of by others who were claiming to be trying to get him released from prison. One of these even convinced Packer to sign him over as a power of attorney. This crazy dude by the name of Plug Hat Anderson. And this Plug Hat guy, he eventually snapped and shot two of the reporters from the Denver Post while Polly Pry was present. 
Uh, there's a story about her dress catching one of the bullets or something. The whole damn story is insane. Buy the book. Trust me, you'll love it. All right, let's keep going and try to wrap this up. After many, many appeals and with the help of Polly Pry, a sympathetic public, and the Denver Post, Alfred Packer was finally paroled from prison on February 8th, 1901, at 59 years of age. The governor of Colorado actually signed the parole, not the pardon, parole, on his last day in office as his last official act as governor. The original crime had been committed nearly three decades prior. After nine years on the lam and two trials, Packer had spent 18 years total behind bars. And he was amazed at how much it changed over the years. He initially took a job there at the Denver Post as sort of a security guard, but eventually moved on to nearby Jefferson County where he led a quiet life, prospected a bit, and then moved again to Sheridan, Colorado, not Wyoming. And there he continued this quiet life, raising chickens, tending to his garden. He became known as a kindly old man who'd hand out candy to children, regaling them with tales likely made up from the old days, tales of encounters with grizzly bears and heroin battles with Native Americans. In 1905, Packer moved back to Jefferson County near Deer Creek Canyon, where he worked part-time for an old friend named Ed Connolly. In July of the following year, 1906, the Connollys left Packer on the ranch alone as they went on a trip. One morning, a passerby happened to notice that Packer was collapsed on the ground, unconscious. Rushing him to obtain medical help, Packer would uh, slightly improve, but he would be constantly racked by seizures for months. And these were very, very violent seizures. He was basically bedridden. In the fall of 1906, in one 24-hour period, he had 15 seizures. Still, though, he lingered. However, by early April, knowing that the end was probably near, Alfred asked for pen and paper. He wrote to the then governor that he was dying and once again claimed innocence, asking for an unconditional pardon for his past crimes, uh, saying that he wanted to die clear in the opinion of his fellow men. No action was ever taken, and on April 23, 1907, Alfred Packer passed away. He was buried the next day in Littleton, Colorado, in full Grand Army of the Republic rites. Uh, the Grand Army of the Republic, or the GAR, was a fraternal order of Civil War veterans, so I assume this was some sort of a military funeral. And yeah, man, that's about it for the life of Alfred Packer. Uh, the dude has been the subject of much speculation over the years, and to this day, nobody can say for sure if he was actually guilty of killing all those men. The site where the alleged murders happened has been dug up extensively. The bodies have been exhumed. I'll leave it up to you to look up more info on these findings, but as far as I'm concerned, nothing has really been discovered that says whether or not Alfred was telling the truth. None of it's been conclusive. Who knows, man? I sure don't. I'll tell you what I do not think. If Alfred did murder all five men, I don't believe that he led them into the wilderness with that intention, as he was accused of during that first trial. That's a little too far-fetched. If it happened, I think it was an insanity sort of thing. You know, they were all starving. I think Alfred probably snapped due to hunger, and he killed them all, and then he ate them. Even if he's telling the truth, and it was Bell that killed everybody, and then Alfred just killed Bell, it was still insanity. And Alfred obviously stole the money just because it was there. But yeah, I guess it is possible that things could have happened the way Alfred claimed there at the end. Maybe he did kill Bell out of self-defense. I don't know. I mean, we don't know much about Bell other than what Packer said, but we do know he was a well-respected man, as opposed to Packer, who fucking nobody respected, at least not at that point of his life. And furthermore, uh, not something that's touched on much, but Packer, as an old man, made these strange claims that he was a former scout, even saying that he scouted for Custer. And that's obviously not true. Still, though, as far as the murders go, 
There was no deathbed confession, and he did always maintain his innocence. Whatever his faults, he never wavered on that last confession. So what do you think? Was Alfred Packer guilty of murdering all five of his fellow miners or just a desperate man in a desperate situation surviving the only way he knew how? Hit me up at josh at wildwestextra.com and let me know. Or just head on over to my website, wildwestextra.com, and hit that contact button. I'm curious as to your thoughts on the matter. If you're hungry for more, <laughs> get it? Stop in at Packer's Saloon and Cannibal Grill there in Lake City, Colorado. Tell them I sent you, to which they will reply, who? That said, I cannot vouch for where the meat originates, nor do I know how often the health inspector makes his way up there to Lake City, so dine at your own risk. And if any of this sounds familiar, maybe you've seen the musical Cannibal written by modern-day philosopher geniuses Trey Stone and Matt Parker. The very entertaining comedy is loosely based on Alfred Packer's life. That's about all I've got. If you like this, share it with somebody, please. Um, got a couple of corrections to make. Last episode, I made a mistake and referred to a single-action revolver as a single-shot revolver. That was a slip of the tongue, as I do know there is no such thing as a single-shot revolver. But what was not a slip of the tongue was when I said that General Patton used a pearl-handled Colt. I've since been corrected and told that he, in fact, used ivory-handled Colts, and that he was even quoted as saying that only a New Orleans pimp would use a gun with pearl handles. So, my apologies to you, and my apologies to General Patton. Thank you all for listening. Really appreciate all the kind words and emails. Thank you for all your support. All the new members on Patreon, and all of you that have been uh, contributing to the cause via Buy Me A Coffee, if you would also like to contribute, feel free to head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wild West. You could also join up on Patreon for a reoccurring monthly support of just $5, but I'll be honest, there's not much there. I do have a series I did on Kit Carson like two years ago that's only available on Patreon, and I do have my very first ever podcast episode also available only on there. So if you want to laugh about how horrible I was, go for it. Link to my Patreon on this episode's show notes. But as of right now, I do not have a reoccurring bonus episode or anything like that. I do donate 20% of all my earnings via Patreon to charity, however, because it makes me feel good. So if you want to feel good, come on with it. Like I said, check out the book Maneater. Check out Cannibal the Musical. Try not to murder and or eat another human being. And if you do, you're going to want to cook that meat until its internal temperature is about 160 degrees. Trust me on this. Trichnosis is no joke. All right, till next time. Adios. Adios.